Welcome to Markets Plus, where leading experts from across BMO discuss factors shaping the markets, economy, industry sectors, and much more. Visit bmocm.com slash markets plus for more episodes. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Today, I'm joined by Doug Morrow, Director of ESG Strategy on BMO's Equity Research Team. Doug just published a report on Silicon Valley Bank, SVB, and the emerging narrative on whether ESG distracted from the bank's core business and led to its eventual collapse. Doug and his team analyzed these claims head-on, evaluating SVB's ESG approach and whether it contributed to the bank's failure. Doug, I'm really excited to chat with you about this. It's really interesting to me that you took a very rigorous approach to this question and actually investigated these kinds of claims. Can you tell me about the research that you've done in relation to whether SVB failed because of some uh, wokeness, as is sometimes called, or ESG strategy of the bank, and what your findings were? Uh, Sure. Well, thanks very much for having me back, Michael. It's a real pleasure to be here. And as far as SVB goes, I think Unfortunately, I think what happened was that the bank got caught up in the politicization of uh, ESG that's taking place in the U.S. So what we saw was that within a few days of the bank's failure, we started to see this narrative develop that SVB had failed because management was too focused on priorities like sustainable finance or diversity, equity, and inclusion or other uh, ESG priorities. And I think the dust has settled, and I, I do believe this narrative has been mostly debunked, but it really shows just how politically charged uh, ESG has become in the U.S. So as we said in our note, the facts are that SVB collapsed because of what we would characterize as a lumpy deposit base, which was highly skewed to uh, uninsured deposits and long-term treasury bonds. And basically, this caught up to the bank when interest rates began rising uh, through unrealized losses under mark-to-market accounting rules. So in our view, that is what eventually led the bank to collapse. It was about poor uh, risk management and inadequate risk controls. So, you know, I do think it's a real stretch to say that these mistakes were made because uh, management was too busy trying to meet ESG goals, which was part of the narrative that kind of came out uh, after the failure. Now, to be fair, I do think SVB definitely had a unique culture and what I would call a determined ESG strategy. You know, they certainly had ambitious diversity goals. They were known as a climate bank. They provided a ton of financing to smaller clean tech and green tech companies. They had over 1,500 customers doing climate and sustainability work, but they had been successfully using that model for decades. So again, I think it does come down to inadequate risk controls and the sudden change in the interest rate environment, not the bank's uh, book of business with the climate community or uh, its ESG commitments, in my view. You mentioned that SVB was known as a financier of clean tech, but part of your research also concluded that actually their uh, sustainable finance commitments and uh, achievements were actually lower than the industry. Can you elaborate on some of the quantitative analysis you did? Sure. So one expression of a bank's ESG approach is its commitment to sustainable finance. This means facilitating and mobilizing loans and financing for companies 
that are, for example, providing sustainable solutions, aligning against the SDGs, working on energy transition, etc. It's not the only ESG line item that investors look at or should look at when they assess a bank, but it's definitely an increasingly important one. So what we did and the thrust of our note is we, we just crunched the numbers. And what we found was that SVB's sustainable finance commitment turned out to be about 2% of its total assets. That's as of uh, December 31 of last year. So they had made a commitment to achieve $5 billion in sustainable finance by 2027 against total assets of $212 billion. So this is well, well below the percentage that we see for the major Wall Street banks. So for example, Morgan Stanley's sustainable finance commitment of $1 trillion by 2030 is about 84% of total assets. And JP Morgan's is 68%, Bank of America's is 49%. So to be fair, these commitments do stretch out to 2030, whereas SVB's was a little closer to home at uh, 2027. But still, you know, it's clear that SVB's sustainable finance commitment was much less ambitious than what we're seeing in other parts of the U.S., financial services ecosystem. So again, it just kind of reinforces this idea that the collapse was more a function of inadequate risk controls than climate financing or ESG practices. One thing that I thought was a really important observation, though, in your uh, analysis was the evolving views on ESG, how we understand each of those categories, and, and how we can't lose sight, particularly on the G, the governance aspect, in considering an overall assessment of sustainability. And this is one of the things I've noticed a real evolution in even just the last couple of years, where the integration of ESG into core business practices is really the major development uh, in, in recent years in terms of the rigor in which we think about ESG. There's, of course, ESG scores and ratings that come out. And, you know, different raters may put different emphasis on the different categories. And perhaps sometimes there's equivalency drawn between them when maybe there ought not to be from a risk management or other perspective. Can you elaborate on, on what you uh, concluded in terms of the role of G and ESG and what this situation tells you about maybe how we ought to be considering ESG and also maybe the future of how ESG should be evaluated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is probably the most ironic thing. So the narrative was that SVB collapsed because it was too woke or too ESG, but maybe it wasn't ESG enough. And what I mean by that was that it, it's clear that there were some governance irregularities with SVB. And a point, again, Michael, this, this dovetails with what you said in the intro, a point that we've been making in our research for a long time now is that it's important not to forget about the G in ESG. It's interwoven everywhere, and it may not always command the same attention you know, as large uh, environmental or social issues you know, such as climate change. But really, if you look at, uh, behind the scenes, G is interwoven into how a company manages uh, E and S risks and opportunities. So a critical part of any well-governed company is effective risk management and oversight. However, it came out in the days following SVB's failure that the company had been operating without a chief risk officer for much of 2022 and uh, into 2023. And this was definitely unusual. In fact, the Federal Reserve had identified this as a problematic governance practice long before the collapse. So 
would that by itself have led some investors to bypass SVB as an investment? I'm not sure, but it should definitely have been seen as a red flag. Another G issue that has received a lot of scrutiny as the dust has settled uh, was SVB's board composition. So, you know, by anyone's standard, SVB had a, a highly diverse board, and we've seen some questions pop up about whether you know, despite this diversity, whether there was sufficient banking industry expertise. So I think that's a really interesting question, but I certainly don't believe that diversity from the perspective of women on the board or, or BIPOC representation on the board contributed to the bank's collapse. I think, I think it's crucial for boards to have diverse representation, and we should be thinking about board diversity from the perspective of an and, not an either-or. So in other words, it's about finding competent, experienced, and diverse viewpoints. Michael, there's another issue here that you touched on, and that's the role of uh, ESG ratings. So despite any governance issues that the company had, it still had a generally favorable ESG rating from MSCI and Sustainalytics. These are far and away the two biggest players in the market and the most important, in my opinion. So MSCI had them at a single A and Sustainalytics had them at 28.4 on their on their framework. I wouldn't say these are brilliant ESG ratings, but they're definitely investable and definitely skewed towards the better end. The data also show, as we pointed out in our note, this is based on Morningstar numbers, that ESG funds appear to have been marginally overweight, uh, SVB relative to conventional funds. So they had a average allocation of 0.33% of their assets uh, held in SVB equity. This compares to 0.29% for conventional funds, so slightly overweight. So again, I think this shows that many ESG funds were quite happy to hold SVB irrespective of any governance issues. This is what we mean when we say that ESG scores can create a false sense of precision. You know, they've been extraordinarily successful in facilitating uh, ESG integration, but investors still need to do their homework. So, Doug, if there was a case study at a business school on SVB and you're teaching ESG or sustainable finance, what would you sum up as the key takeaways and lessons learned from this situation? Well, when I reflect on it, my first thought, to be honest, is that there's a big hole in the market right now for climate financing in the U.S., which clearly, you know, clearly creates opportunity. But when I reflect on the lessons, I mean, I think it's crucial for banks and indeed any company not to lose sight of the significance of risk management and basic risk management protocols. You know, they may not always get the attention of other parts of the enterprise, but risk management is obviously an essential function. And the importance cannot really be overstated, especially in times of um, in periods of market volatility. So clearly that's one takeaway. I also think that SVB's failure is going to raise the market's interest in assessing firm culture. As I said in the, at the opening, it, it was definitely the case that the bank had a unique culture, particularly compared to its Wall Street peers. And firm culture is difficult to measure. It's not a line item. You cannot observe it on a balance sheet, an income statement, cash flow statement, but it's clear that it can play an important role in how a company competes and it can have effects on financial performance. So I think you're going to see more dialogue coming out of this about uh, how we think about firm culture. And then from an ESG perspective, 
uh, I think it's pretty clear that this failure is going to put more scrutiny on ESG funds and their selection methodologies and also the role of composite ESG scores. So just because a company is excelling on environmental practices doesn't mean it necessarily has excellent labor practices or health and safety practices or incentive structures. And it's interesting because when I first started in the responsible investing world, this is going way back, I'm really gonna date myself here, but this is going back to 2004, much more attention was paid to ESG inputs. But somewhere along the line, I would say maybe roughly in 2017, you know, when ESG really started to take off, we had, you know, the tailwinds from the Paris Agreement just being signed, uh, composite scores became commonplace. And I think that this collapse from SVB shows that it will always be important for investors to look under the hood and do a deep dive on each of these uh, pillars. Thank you, Doug, for that very thoughtful analysis. It's uh, very interesting and timely. So thanks for your time today. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. You can follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more episodes, visit bmocm.com slash markets plus. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns, Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation, together BMO. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity, which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests, and you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets, insecurities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public dash disclosure slash.